0: Welcome everyone. Oh my gosh, it's the last episode or it's the last class. Kind of makes you sad, but on the other hand, the sooner this year can be done, the better. I'm talking to you on Thursday, April 1st, and right now, for those of you who aren't in Ontario, Ontario is about to enter apparently 28 days of lockdown again. (sighs) Anyway... Getting, uh, it's getting tough, I must say, but we're here to talk about situations worse than that, I guess. We're here talking about animals. We're talking about using them for our health and for our wants and needs, basically. So we're talking about, we're considering animals, they're a consumable, consumable product. All the All the aspects of animals that are in our consumer cultures, but furthermore, as test subjects for research. Okay, So now think about it, um, for those of you who aren't in North America at the moment, in North America, and maybe where you are too, our primary relationship with animals is either we eat them or they're our pets. That's an interesting juxtaposition, but that's the way it is, isn't it? We either eat them or we pet them, and they're like a member of our family. And eating meat is just something... In our in Western cultures, that people just grow up doing, so they put no thought into it. Typically, when the class, when we're actually in person, one of the things I'll ask uh, vegetarians or vegans, I'll say, I'll prep one of them and say, I'm going to ask you a question: Why are you vegetarian or why are you vegan? And no one ever does it by accident or by for no reason. They always have reasons. Either it's health related, they feel it's better for them or they believe animals deserve better treatment so they refuse to eat animals or there's a bunch of other ones as religious ones and so forth but the point is no one ever becomes a vegan without thinking about it or a vegetarian without thinking about it they all do it intentionally when i ask then meat eaters in the class or omnivores and i say like why do you eat meat I never get a thoughtful answer. Often people realize I don't—they don't have one. So I get jokes. One of the best ones was a kid who stood up. Um, he looked very serious, and I thought, "Oh, here we go. We're going to have a great answer to this question." He said, "Like because it's yummy." Oh, it's yummy. That's you know, and it was a great funny answer. But I remember thinking—I remember being so disappointed. It's like oh, I thought we were onto something, but in other—in another way, we were onto something. That is probably. The sentiment behind meat-eating, the amount of thought that goes into it, right? And people don't like to defend their meat-eating because vegetarians and vegans kind of have a bad reputation for being judgmental and aggressive about their beliefs. So people talk about that, but they don't actually address the arguments put forward. So we're talking about the arguments being put forward, right? I'm a meat-eater. I'm an omnivore. That's the, I've been vegetarian um, basically because I dated one. So, and she was kind of condescending about it. She's like, well, this, obviously, this diet isn't for you. And I was like, oh, 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 okay, okay, yeah, 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 sure. I'm going vegetarian right now. And part of it was to impress her because it was a new relationship and you you care about those things when you're in a new relationship. Um, And secondly, I was kind of, it's kind of competitive, right? It was kind of like, oh, I not good enough to be vegetarian? I can't do it? Oh, I'm going to show you and i And I did, and then we broke up, and I went back to eating meat, and it was the best burger you'd ever had <laughs> All right, enough of that questions about is it an is there an ethical component to eating animals? Of course, there is right doesn't mean that it's wrong or right, but it's definitely an ethical question that we we contemplate and is there an ethical element to the issue of of using animals right, and also the health Issue like does the health features of it play a role in our ethics? Well, of course it does, because if we could demonstrate clearly that one was better than the other for the health of the population, then it seems like we should be encouraging better health behaviors instead of worse health behaviors. Right? That's not a that's policy, but that's also ethically driven. Right? It's saying that we are committed, we should be a society that promotes healthy behaviors as much as possible and discourages unhealthy ones. That's not mandating it. It's not like the vaccine question you did for your essay. It's simply saying, when we consider what public money, for example, goes into, should it be promoting poor behaviors or poor health behaviors, or should it promote good health behaviors? Anyway, we'll talk about that. Now, I want to start with vegetarian and veganism, of course, is hundreds and thousands of years old. Hundreds, comma, even thousands of years old. Uh, But I think we'll talk about it I think I'm picking an arbitrary moment in history and saying, here's where we're going to start. Here it is. I'm going to say 1971. Okay, now vegetarian and veganism had existed before that. But vegetarian and veganism really became a bestseller, if you will, with the book Diet for a Small Planet by Frances Moore LaPay. LaPay is L-A-P-P-E with an accent. Okay, and she wrote her book, this is the first time a a book, not a cookbook, but a, a theoretical work made for the general population that took off, became a bestseller. And She has what we call LaPay's protein theory. Okay? And it's a central piece of advice in her book. Right? It's constructed as an argument. And I'll deconstruct it here for you in a second. But even though it was presented as sort of dietary and lifestyle advice, it wasn't flaky, meaningless stuff. It, It was this was innovative. This was really powerfully written. And it had a very profound ethical component to it, okay? And that's the protein theory. Now, we're going to talk about what is the protein theory. Well, I'm going to read it out to you like um, premises and conclusions. That's the basic construction of arguments, right? You have premises that all work together to prove or to validate the conclusion. So let's listen to it. Premise one, there is a scarcity of food in the world. So in 1971, the conceptualization is that people who are hungry don't have access to food. Asterix, in 2021, one of the things we know now is that the world produces enough calories for every person to have somewhere in the neighborhood of 2,000 calories a day. Every man, woman, and child, 2,000 calories a day. From food production. What we have is a food distribution problem. Those calories are not being equally distributed across the world. They're being hoarded in places like Canada and the United States and Western Europe. And the countries with deprivation don't have it. So, but let's just, fair enough to say, we can accept her premise. Right? That basically there are people who don't have food right? And in 1971, it was viewed as um, a scarcity of food in the world. And I think that's still true. The reason being is a little, you know, we can argue about, but I think we can accept the premise. Premise two, animals are fed excessive protein in order to grow their own meat protein. For example, chickens eat about eight pounds of protein feed in order to produce one pound of meat. Right? So here's this inefficient distribution of protein grains being fed to animals so that we can have less of a protein we like better. The most popular food, most popular protein source in North America is chicken breast. Okay, so chicken breast is the premium item. So a disproportionate amount of protein feed, we're talking soy, and corn and other other grains are being fed to these birds. Um, Basically, they're on like bulking diets so that they can create more breast meat for our preferred eating habits. But that doesn't make it, uh, doesn't make it, first of all, it's inefficient, but secondly, it seems like we're dumping a lot of resources into creating a luxury item or a preference item when, as we mentioned in premise one, there are people without enough to eat, period. Premise three, humans don't need to eat animal protein to be healthy. In fact, she argues that we would be healthier if we ate the non-meat proteins that we feed the chickens. Now, you can, people in performance nutrition who are studying these things, they might argue, they can make a a decent argument that meat protein is uh, essential to a a healthy diet, right? And then on the other hand, you can point to non-meat proteins, non-animal proteins, uh, creating a very substantial, very balanced, healthy inducing diet. But that's her premise third. So that leads us to this conclusion. Eating animals is short-sighted and ultimately harmful to us and others. Right? So there's the conclusion which has a very profound moral tone to it. Right? It's saying we don't need to eat this, and furthermore, it would be better humanity would be better off. Now, she wasn't making an animal-focused argument like Peter Singer does in a few minutes. She's making a human-focused argument. She's not necessarily saying we should take better care of animals or we should treat them more like people. She's simply saying, as humans and as people, right? Personhood argument coming in again, right? As people... We need to, we would be better off if we didn't eat animals because we could take better care of humans we don't see in our neighborhood or don't live in our country or live a global citizenship notion. This is 1971. So this stuff is, this stuff is really profound that she went here. Now, we're talking about meat. How much meat do we eat even? Okay, so Stats Canada keeps records for every six years. What they do is they do a, a, A purchasing survey, they study the amount of sales of different kinds of agricultural products because they want to track what kinds of agricultural products come in and out of popularity. So according to Agriculture Canada, in 2014, so we're due, I think COVID basically derailed it, but this is the most recent one we have, but we're due for another one. But in a year, the average Canadian, so this is half or more, half or less, 18 years of age or older, will consume, so this is in one year, they'll consume, you'll consume 60, or excuse me, 30.6 kilograms of chicken, 30 kilograms of beef, 28.1 kilograms of pork, 4.3 kilograms of turkey, 1.7 kilograms of what is termed mature chicken. I, I don't know if that's a chicken that doesn't tell fart jokes or what exactly that is, but... Mature chicken, 1.7 kilograms, veal, 1.1 kilograms, and lamb, one kilogram. That's each Canadian 18 years of age or over on average. Now you start taking out of that equation vegetarians, you take out of that equation people from religious beliefs that have a prohibition against pork eating, which is 28.1 kilograms for, for average Canadians, not including you folks and not including the vegetarians, that's a substantial amount of meat. Well, how much is it exactly? It's 96.8 kilograms of meat per person per year in Canada. That's, for you non-metric people out there, that's 213 pounds of meat a year for each individual. And meat is more popular. We have this movement where vegetarianism is becoming a larger and larger segment of the population. It goes from being a kind of a 1% kind of movement to now it's approaching much more like 7%, 8 9% of Canadians are vegetarians or non-meat eaters. As in not, not flexitarians or plant-based or any of these other kind of terms for eating less meat. But we're talking about people who don't eat meat at all or very, very occasionally, right? So the staples of their diet, their regular diet is not including meat. Chicken consumption in that time. So we've had this increase in popularity in vegetarians, but at the same time, we have this increase in popularity for other things like chicken. So chicken consumption has increased since 1972. It's increased 84%. And everything else has basically stayed the same, except beef had a brief recline or decline around the time of the mad cow disease outbreaks in Britain and Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease and those kind of concerns. But basically, beef restabilized and came back up to previous sales. And beef it's interesting that beef remains remained stable because there has been a lot of people who have taken beef out of their diet Largely because they see it, and it's been there's lots of research that suggests that it's disproportionately bad for the environment raising beef as opposed to raising even other animals. That beef is the worst offender. I'm not saying that's true or false, I'm saying there are studies that say that people are believing that, so that's affecting consumer behavior, right? And interesting, also more recently, even so in 2019. Dalhousie University and the University of Guelph did a study, and this was at the start of the whole beyond meat movement, we'll say. That's the uh that's this plant-based protein substitute or meat substitute. It's supposed to look like meat, taste like meat. Um, it doesn't, but it is certainly nice. It's very lovely, but it's no, it's not a hamburger, it's not a sausage. That's that's for sure. Uh but even as that stuff, the demand for those things spiked a little bit in 2019 and 2018, and we had this big movement towards that. So even meat eaters were saying, oh, I wanna, I wanna try and substitute meat out for this stuff. You saw meat <laughs> demand rising at the same time. So it seems like what's happening is we're simply eating more of everything because demand for it seems to grow in everything. And Even when something new comes into the marketplace, which should, you would think, take over part of that market share it seems to just expand the market share okay and some of the concerns or some of the issues related to meat eating also comes around from ecological impacts of animal farming and since we just talked a bit about it let's talk about it some more so there's several the research sort of indicates and not conclusively but these are sort of the themes of the research which seem to be coming out and are being tested, the hypotheses are being tested and so forth. One of them is that an overpopulation of cattle can create, and we're talking about beef specifically, have an intense methane offshoot and that has a negative effect on the ozone layer. So that was a major concern for a while and a lot of the discussion was focused that way. Now. That's, you can dispute that, and there's studies that suggest it's not as bad. But the point is that that was one of the thrusts of arguments for the ecological concerns. Another one is uh, having a lot of animals in a small space creates uh, an issue related to feces. And fecal runoff into water supplies creates a massive problem. So just near London, Ontario, there's a town called Walkerton. And in the year 2000 or 1999, I can't remember which, but in that area, they had a, people died of E. coli poisoning because it came from the water supply. And there was some some discussion about, it was some combination of failure in the water treatment plant and also proximity of major cattle farms and high density animal agriculture near water supply. Okay, so... Don't shit in your water. That's the basic uh, basic answer there, and don't certainly don't have the mechanisms fail that are supposed to protect you from that. Grazing lands for cattle cause permanent damage to land surfaces. So once you had animals on land, for in a lot of them, right, uh, the then what you've done is you've basically created that made that land inarable. Right, it's not useful for anything else. Now there was a in older times with low density feedlots. So basically you have a bunch of animals on a large patch of land, but it's not shoulder to shoulder. One of the things farmers often did was move animals from pasture to pasture over the years to let the land recover, right? Because having thousands of pounds of animal standing on it, walking on it, and so forth, really can damage it unless you move them around. And the idea behind moving around was also for the animals benefit because they had fresher grasses to eat on other parts of the land. So you would move them around or you'd let them roam and they could decide. And they're not gonna stay in the same spot over and over. Right? But if you compel them to be in a small space and you put a lot of them in that space, right? That causes ecological damage there. Now, One of the answers that's been offered to this ecological question has been uh, organic food. Now, organic food, fantastic. There is a a small issue related to organic food that we need to talk about. One is that it's not abundantly clear that you can actually have organic food. (laughs) And by that, I mean a farmer, a well-intentioned farmer, right, who intends, values and intends to keep his animals Free uh, and compliant with organic rules, or a crop doesn't matter what they're doing. There is a concern that you can't actually enforce that because artificial poisons and other kinds of substances are so ubiquitous in the environment that even though you don't spray your crops with these kind of uh, with Roundup or other any kinds of insecticides or herbicides, even though you do that. It's everywhere, it's drifting in the air, contaminating your field. You know, in one spot, in where my wife is from in Saskatchewan, in one spot, there's literally an, uh, an organic farm on one side of the road, and on the other side, eight, 10 feet across, there's a non-organic farm. So whether that organic farm is actually organic, entirely 100% depends on the winds. Which way is the wind blow? And if the wind is blowing in the right direction, you no longer have an organic crop, right? And it's not just small amounts of contamination. We've seen in studies where contamination is um, really, really significant. And furthermore, there's a lot of deception in the organic labeling, too. Uh, there was a book, Regulation by Proxy, by David Carter. And David Carter points out, in the USDA program... I should point out, we like to feel, as Canadians, we like to feel better than the Americans in a lot of things and more progressive. But when it came to organics, the USDA, the Department of Agriculture, was ahead of Canada by a long shot. And they had moderately rigorous standards for organic foods way ahead of Canada. And they had an effective enforcement program, or they had effective... They, they caught people and they, they punished people for it and they, they made people prove to some degree, so it was effective. Um, was there cheating? Oh oh yeah, when you read the book Regulation by Proxy, it's evident how the thing fails, but they were way ahead of us because all we had was farmer's goodwill or third-party certifications where it's says certified organic by these people um, and there was no common standard it wasn't like all those groups got together and said, here's what we call organic. Each of them had their own definition. So even, again, even by well-meaning intentions, you don't always get the results you're looking for. But organic percentage of Canadians in 2016, 56% of Canadians bought organic food weekly. That rose in one year in 2017 to 66%. Now, we're seeing it stabilize at that point so it's still a popular item, and people will change their shopping behaviors to buy organic because they believe it to be better. Either better as a moral decision, they want to take care of the earth they, uh, for future generations, which is strictly a moral sentiment. Right? There's no self-preservation there. There's no selfish motives when you say, I want my grandchildren, if I have any, to have access to a planet that's not poisoned. For me, it won't matter to me so much, but I want that as a moral thing. That's what people, that's expressing the sentiment there. Now, it should be said that there's lots of research to suggest that organic foods, even foods that um, are toxin-free and so forth, right, that, that actually are organic, right, authentically uh, measured and tested. These are not exposed to Roundup. These are not exposed to artificial fertilizers, etc. Right. So you have. Imagine you have this, and they they exist. You get these, and then you have studies. And I'm looking at a review from Food and Chemical Toxicology, Volume 125, March 2019, pages 370 to 375, by Gonzalez et al. The article is called Occurrence of Environmental Pollutants in Foodstuffs, A Review of Organic Versus Conventional Food. So, Gonzalez et al. Right, Study it, and they found that these contaminations, the cross-contamination is really prolific, which is not a criticism of organic food, it's a criticism of the level of toxicity sort of, in the ecosystem where you can't, hide, you can't isolate yourself from it. You can make you so. Imagine you're drug free, but yet being in a house with someone who isn't makes you not drug free. It's that kind of it's that environmental contamination situation that we're talking about. And then uh, organic foods are they healthier? So you have say you have an authentically organic food versus a regular food, right? One that's not protected from these exposures. One that you know, pesticides and herbicides are used on, specifically. And in animals, you have animals that have taken antibiotics and so forth. So you have all of this together. What does the end result, the end product? You have an organic chicken breast versus a conventional store chicken breast. What's the health value, relatively speaking? Well, in one article, right, from the Annals of Internal Medicine... The conclusion is the public, published literature lacks strong evidence that organic foods are significantly more nutritious than conventional foods. Consumption of organic foods may reduce exposure to pesticides residues and antibiotic resistant bacteria. So they're saying that there is a small uh, improvement in the situation; that the nutritional difference is not, because that's one of the one of the claims certainly in the marketing is that organic vegetables are higher in vitamins and nutrients than commercially produced, mass produced kinds of things with that use pesticides and herbicides and so forth. Studies don't indicate that that is a, a real big significant thing. The, However, you know, the issue of contamination, uh, pesticides and antibiotics, ah, there's something there. So there is some benefit to organic food. Then the question becomes, um well two questions one is a consumer is does it really justify the price difference sometimes it's not necessarily how much the food actually costs but what will the market bear people with money will buy it this way then we create a we have a justice issue wherein well if you're wealthy here's another way in which you having money allows you to further your health interests over somebody who doesn't have money to make that consumer choice so that's an issue but we talk about a little bit about animal production and animal husbandry. We're talking about factory farming. Okay, so factory farming, the idea of when I said high-density feedlots. Basically, you know, you're feeding a lot of animals, and you contain them in a small space. High-density literally means number of, for example, chickens per square foot. And the, the higher the number you can get, the more efficient your chicken operation is, and therefore your profitability should be better as well. And that's what the business is. So those are, that's an important number, right? Because chicken is relatively cheap. And if, you're, if you've ever gone to 7-Eleven and gotten the, uh, the meatballs, there used to be like a skewer of three of them for $1.99 or something like that. We in the West have access to this incredibly cheap meat, Uh, But one of the things you must remember is that the reason you have access to cheap meat is because of that density feedlot equation, right? Because you can't produce cheap meat if you're producing very little meat. You have to have the maximum output based on your inputs, right? Efficiency. So the problem is that the fact that there's cheap food all over the place and chicken is cheap, you can get uh, lots of things for very, very little money, you can get a lot of protein for very little money in the West. Why is that? Well, part of it is that efficiency and the, the the kinds of the kinds of farming methods and interventions they use, which can often be quite horrific. Now, one of the things that's happened here, of course, is that use of animals and interaction with animals has been uh, bad for humanity in some ways, right? So we we Our whole economy is based on a certain use of animals as a product. And then occasionally it will bite us in the ass like it is right now. Because, of course, the coronavirus is a zoonotic infection. Just like SARS was. Just like bird flu is. Just like MERS was back in 2016. And whatever the next great plague is going to be is likely going to be zoonotic. Z-O-O-N-O-T-I-C. Zoonotic. It means that it's was isolated in animals for animal-to-animal transmission, but we encountered it, and it crosses species over into humans. So the considered medical opinion and people, geneticists who have studied the coronavirus, have determined that they think it came from bats, right? Interaction with uh, human interaction, exposure to bats. bird flu. Bird flu is not something that humans pass to each other. It's not even that a chicken coughs on you. Right? It's ingesting chicken feces inadvertently through unclean, unhygienic food handling processes. Right? If you take nothing from this course, you take nothing from this podcast, you never eat chicken shit. Should be an exam question. Maybe it will be an exam question. Right? Should you? Do- Dr. Cookwood says you should not eat chicken shit. True or false. Right? And if you get that one wrong, you should just not be allowed to take the course again. <laughs> Oh, God. No, the zoonotic infection is the major concern. And as we've used animals and our interaction with animals is the way it is, it creates greater risks for us to develop zoonotic infections. And as you can see, uh, right now, sometimes it can have a major effect on the economy. Even though the economy runs on animals in a lot of ways, and our use of them, it's a major part of it, it's funny that... This has happened. But then, on a side note, one of the sectors of the economy that has survived the best has been animal consumption. Meat packing plants have had a major problem because the um, nature of that work... Basically, I think it's highly exploitative and worker safety is not a major concern... ...because it's often done by cheap imported labor people, uh, temporary foreign workers and so forth in Canada... You bring people in to do this job because it's extremely dangerous and it's a terrible job. And you can't get native-born Canadians to work there. So you bring people in uh, from poorer nations who are happy just to be working at a decent-paying job to support family home- at home. The conditions don't get better because of that. Of course, they get they get worse. So meatpacking plants in Canada and the United States have had huge outbreaks of covid that has basically crippled that industry in a way. But other kinds of animal food consumption, uh, producing and so forth, has thrived. The grocery stores have done extremely well during COVID. Right? They've become incredibly profitable. The most recent news in the Financial Post said that Galen Weston, who is the owner of the Loblaws family uh, of uh, stores, so we're talking about Loblaws, no frills, superstore, uh, Value Mart, Shoppers Drug Mart. That's those are all his. Um, that he he has returned for shareholders in that that's a, that stock. He's returned a great dividend because they had a bumper year in the time of COVID, which is interesting because part of his business that 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 animal protein aspect of the business contributed to this. Say so contributed contributed. Excuse me to this situation, not him in particular, but. The, the business in general. What about animals as test subjects? Okay, so interesting thing about animals as test subjects. We, people, uh, even vegetarians, vegans, maybe, I think there's been certainly a movement in vegan veganism to say that we shouldn't experiment on animals in an unnecessarily cruel fashion. However, there are people who don't worry about, they want animals to be treated better but they don't necessarily put themselves on equal with animals, right? They're not giving animals personhood status. They're simply saying, morally, we should treat them better. Because that reflects on us as a human. And you know who's, who said that initially was Kant, right, of the deontology of fame. right? Kant said, remember, don't use people as a means to your own ends. Treat them as an ends in themselves. Do you remember that classic? Well, that didn't apply to animals of course cuz it was only meant to apply to rational beings and that was that was humans only right and kant was inclusive of females as opposed to others of the time so basically humans you should treat no treat no human as a means to your ends treat them as somebody who has an ends in themselves now animals didn't count as that but then kant said but that doesn't mean you get to treat an animal as a thing right it's not this pure binary of you're either a person or you're a thing. And you, can, you should treat people like people and things like things, which means whatever. But he said, because a creature, because the animal is a creature and has some level of functioning related to reason, or it has some human-like qualities, right? And then going back to Aristotle, right? Aristotle saying like, well, we share some things in common with those lower creatures, but humans are the, the the highest form of it because we have the most levels of soul. Right? Kant said, if you misuse animals, they're living being things, living beings. Right? They're creatures. They're not things. But if we treat them as things, then that is a negative reflection on us and our obligations. So he saw treating animals poorly or being cruel was a, a, a bad behavior, it was something you should avoid at all costs it's a duty not to be vicious, not to be cruel now it doesn't mean that animals were the same it just meant that how you treated lesser creatures reflected on you as a human and it was a dereliction of your duty your duties, right, do no harm don't be cruel, don't be injurious, don't be malicious though that in that vein Right, that included animals, because if you were somebody who would misuse an animal, that's a negative sign for you as a person. So, what are the three major? Well, there's more than three, but let's go with three major concerns related to research involving animals. One, of course, is zoonotic infections, just like zoonotic jeepers, zoonotic infections. Please forgive me, zoonotic infections, just like we were talking about a second ago when I was pronouncing it properly, zoonotic infections. Okay. Zoonotic infections are a concern because as you have this increased exposure to animals and furthermore, when we research on tissues related to use from animals for transplantation into humans, right? So we call that xenotransplantation, X-E-N-O, transplantation. That word means basically from an alien or from an alien source. Right so we're creating human tissues in animals for transplantation and for research purposes. The concern is that if you actually transplanted tissues, human tissues grown in a a mouse, grown in a, any kind of animal, could you create, mutate existing viruses or mutate existing um bacteria or what have you and tr- and basically create a plague. Right? So basically we could have had coronavirus like phenomenon from medical research rather than just um, wet markets and animal interactions like that. Secondly, so another distinction is about the difference between commercial and medical research uses. Because sometimes it's very clear like the uh, people for ethical treatment of animals used to run an ad campaign um, about showing blind bunnies. And saying that uh, companies like I forget who, but they basically tested their their products, their their their, uh, consumer products on animals by checking of a blinding animal blinding rabbits. Now, so picture of a blind bunny, especially now it's close to Easter for you Christians out there. That's kind of a hard image, right? That's kind of a people will be repulsed by that. I mean, that's the whole purpose of it. But then, if you so if you said to a person like, "What about cosmetics?" I, I couldn't find the word a minute, ago. cosmetics. You're searching for uh cosmetic research looking for better beauty products. People don't tend to support a major animal cost. You know, they want can't, and they don't want animals injured or killed. For cosmetics, mostly. But then if you said, but this is actually, we're looking for, I don't know, a vaccine for coronavirus. And we're going to do animal trials. People are much more in favor of that, right? Because they see, in terms of the greater good, and that's how most people sort of think by default, they think, wow, the benefit of a vaccine versus the life of a few, the lives of a few hundred rabbits, there's no comparison, right? They might think that uh you know cosmetic research, looking for consumer products that's nothing, so the distinction however, however, so that's an easy one because the the differences are very stark, but of course, a lot of ethics lives in this middle murky gray middle, right? well, what if you had medical research that wasn't really dealing with life or death kinds of concerns but really more vanity concerns you know or or, or not as significant medical problems. What if it wasn't that life and death? It wasn't that clear. I mean, they they <laughs> they did research on animals uh, related to different kinds of medications that are, you know, very useful and helpful for humans, but not necessarily things that are going to save your life. What if we could get in that gray area? Then we'd have to start hashing out, you know, which particular drug research would justify using animals or not. It becomes very very difficult. And we have basically, we ask, well, what's the threshold? The threshold, remember the threshold concept? Threshold concept was on one line of there, you have a situation where something is okay until you cross a particular line. Or maybe it's not okay, but you have to reach a certain condition or a certain level of something in order to say this is now justified. Remember informed consent? That was our classic example. Informed consent was, you know, Doctor's gonna operate on you, doesn't tell you anything, that's not a, that's absolutely horrific. And in fact, legally they consider it to be battery. Right? So it's still surgery, it's the same surgery. It's not like one's worse and one's better, but one is done without consent. Consent is missing, it's completely unacceptable. When there's informed consent there, where the person has done the proper steps to make sure that you know what you reasonably need to know to either agree or disagree with it, and you agree to it, now the same behavior is is crossed the, th- crossed the threshold into acceptability, into morally good. Whereas before, it was morally wrong. That's just like sex. Sex with consent is one thing. Sex without consent is completely the opposite thing, even though through all the other observable elements, uh, it may be indistinguishable. Right, But they're, they're, that threshold of consent in that behavior most certainly is a huge moral element. Right, It's the key variable in a behavior that if you were looking at from outer space, you'd say like, oh, I see what's going on here. Oh no, because you don't know about that particular variable, that makes all the difference. That makes all the difference into how we judge that situation. That's the threshold. When it crosses over from one acceptable to unacceptable behaviors. Now, let's talk about Peter Singer. Okay, so Peter Singer wrote the book in philosophy. (laughs) Uh, That's a tough one. Let me say this. Philosophy has, publishes tons and tons of books every year. Most of them nobody knows about or cares about. Most people can't read them. And they're of dubious value. And even some of the best ethics books are of dubious value, right? I mean, basically you say, well, I read it. I know stuff. It's interesting because knowledge is cool for its own sake. But maybe it's of limited influence or it's not that explosive a thing to know. Animal Liberation by Peter Singer in 72. This thing is massive because it creates a whole movement. There is an Animal Liberation Front that is very active in Britain, for example, and other parts of the world, right, where they break into universities and release lab animals, and they protest against um, agriculture, animal agriculture. So this has created this lasting legacy of people who are committed to it, right? They've they've taken it on as a personal mission. So for philosophers writing books, that's that's about as over as you can be. Like, that's as popular as you can possibly be. Now Singer talks about it in terms of personhood, right? And we've talked about personhood. And now he's saying, yeah, okay, here's the question. Personhood should not be exclusive to humans, but it should be a based on criteria that can be used to assess any number of creatures. So humans can be part of that and they are likely to be part of that, but it also means that some humans won't be part of it because they can't pass the test. It's like admissions, admission test to medical school or a business school, right? It's, it's open to a bunch of people or a bunch of, a bunch of beings can apply, but only certain ones will be chosen. So equality is about equal consideration of interests. But humans, typically we ignore the interests of higher order mammals in order to suit our own comforts and pleasures, right? So we deny animals their basic existence or uh, a decent existence that they would have otherwise if we hadn't intervened in their lives. And we do it not because it's our survival or theirs, but rather we do it because I like leather coats. I like steak. I like bacon. right? That's the reason why we treat animals the way we do or we allow animals to be treated that way. Now see, here's a key thing, that Singer, this is 72, understanding of Aboriginal issues is non-existent at this point, really. But what was interesting is that Singer said that he was pointing to sort of Western, first world, capitalist societies, he was saying, you guys deny these animals their equal consideration just for the most frivolous, trivial wants of yourselves like we were selfish creatures. It's interesting because you can take that singer approach and when you look at cultures, aboriginal cultures that hunt animals for food because it's, you know, for example in the north, it is not like you can grow crops, right? Because that's not it's not arable land. So fishing and trapping are the means of sustenance. He would treat those as different, different than our relationship with animals. And they we're both eating animals, but what's the threshold? The threshold is, the key variable is that their use of the animal is basically existence, a challenge of existence. One of them will exist and the other will not. Right? It's not like they trap something because they prefer it or they, they raise it in these barbaric conditions because they really prefer the taste of chicken breast to you know, seal. No, right? It's a basic subsistence behavior in those contexts, as opposed to ours, right, where we're making active consumer choices for luxury purposes. So Singer, even though he doesn't articulate it, he captures that issue really, really well in his definition because, for all his failings, he, has a, he had a really astute philosophical mind. Singer is a strict utilitarian. Okay, He is all about the greatest good for the greatest number. What he is expanding, though, is that greatest number. Because traditionally, it's been thought of as strictly humans. What's the greatest number of people, humans, you can benefit? And humans and people have been sort of synonymous. No. He says, I'm expanding that number. People are not just humans. So now we have to consider the greatest good of multiple members... Uh, multiple species in that category of personhood, right? Because for him, a speciesist so you should consider speciism another form of unjustifiable prejudice like racism or sexism or any ism that you hear, right? Where it's saying these, this group of people are being discriminated against unjustifiably for who they are. They're being hated for who they are. And for no other reason. So he says a species is one who discriminates against another's rights by virtue of their belonging to another non human species. Right? So he's adding species now to the list of things that people make unjustifiable differentiations for and they treat differently. Right? So literally, you could not treat a human the way you treat animals. Right? You couldn't make a jacket out of their skin or. Any of that kind of thing, right, eat them, and so forth. You couldn't do that right? Nobody would think that's okay. they think it's okay if it's a it's a cow, so he's saying not okay if it's a cow, not okay if it's a higher order mammal, one who has functioning at a high enough level that they can they can you know pass his test of personhood, and we're going to talk about that here in a second because he's got of course a nice, tidy seven-point categorization or test, if you will, to see if you are admitted into the personhood club or the personhood school. So that's a that a, a discriminates that way, right? So for singer, right, personhood has to be reconfigured and reconsidered. And personhood really should be about any creature who meets the following criteria. Here we go. Number one, can they feel pain, right? There's an assumption here, of course, that feeling pain, suffering, is morally relevant. You cause somebody suffering, that's a negative experience you've created. But what if they could not experience that? That changes things a lot. Maybe it doesn't make your behavior okay if you do exactly the same things to make somebody suffer and they don't. But the point is, if you knowingly create suffering and then suffering occurs... Um, And that doesn't change your behavior. That's a major concern. So feeling pain is a good metric for moral consideration. Number two, make your own decisions. Okay, so are you strictly a slave to your natural impulses or do you make decisions? Do you have some rationality there? So this has been an argument related to intelligent fish, for example, who swim upstream to spawn. Right? Right? The question then amongst zoologists is is this a or animal behaviorists, is this a choice behavior or is this like a biological imperative? Because you as humans, we make choices to reproduce or not all the time. Right? Birth control, extremely common medication prescribed out of the, the pharmacies. Why? Because people are making choices not to reproduce. You know, it might be temporary, it might be long-lasting, whatever. The point is, you can think it through and make a decision. I don't know that salmon make that decision, right? And it's been suggested that they operate on pure biological imperative. Now, you, people can say, well, we have a biological imperative to reproduce. It's like, well, I see lots of evidence that say humans make a choice to reproduce. Sometimes they, they reproduce by accident, of course. Um... MTV had like three different shows about that. But aside, that's, just, that's off topic. People make choices. People make choices all the time related to that. So the question would be like, do you make your own decisions? Can you foresee a future? All of you can foresee a future, right? You can look into, the, you look into your future. Maybe it's uncertain. It doesn't mean you know exactly what's going to happen because none of you do that. None of you know the future, but can you look ahead and see? Well, if I did this, here's how I could imagine my life being. And what if I couldn't do that anymore? Well, then my life would have to be like this. All of that ability to look ahead is a feature of personhood for Singer. Ability to communicate, right? Doesn't mean spoken word, doesn't mean any of our sort of traditional understandings of it. All he's saying is that you have to be able to communicate. If you're absolutely without the capacity to communicate, that is working against your personhood. Ability to reason, right? Now, this is kind of similar to make your own decisions. However, people can reason and not maybe be able to make their own decisions. They could, after the fact, contemplate what an appropriate course of action would have been, but they can't take it. So there's a fine distinction there. For Singer, you have to be able to reason Intellectually, and not simply be at the whim of your biology. But on the other hand, number two is make your own decisions. Then you have to actually be able to articulate and move forward. And I think one of the people, one of the beings he's thinking of are humans who are people, but then suffer significant disability. And his singer is loathed and hated by disability rights groups and scholars who work in the field of disability studies don't like this guy at all. And part of it is, he's pretty, at best, ambiguous, at worst, uh, prejudicial against people with disabilities. Because he could say, a disabled human does not qualify as a person, therefore we should not do anything with them, not spend money on their care and so forth, no more than we would spend money to take care of, um, algae, right? Because those are both non-people, right? And he feels that would be a justifiable discrimination against them, um, which of course has caused people a lot of upset. Self-aware, number six, self-aware. So do you, do you know you exist? Can you, can you articulate your own existence? Can you, are you aware that you are here, right? Because that is, that thats suggests a level of mental activity that's greater than what is traditionally attributed to animals, right? I mentioned a while back, uh, you know, cows not contemplating the afterlife. They don't sit in the field and go, hmm, you know, I wonder why God said to Abraham, kill your son. Humans do that. For a thousand years, humans have done that, right? And people of multiple Religious backgrounds have contemplated it from their own perspective. that question, that one question. I'm pretty sure a chicken has never thought that. right? I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure that at least some animals are unaware that they exist, or unaware of themselves as being in any kind of external fashion, right? where they've ever been able to imagine what people must think of them. Right, you probably spend a lot of time worried about how what people think of you and how are you come across and way. that's you considering yourself being self aware being concerned about how you present yourself, which might be different than how you really are right so that's a, a level of self awareness that a, a cat probably does not have, and if a cat did, cat wouldn't care, and then autonomous right so free an individual who can self rule So that's making decisions, that's an ability to reason, but furthermore, it's the actual ability to execute. And again, controversial, Singer seems to include this as a criteria because part of what he's thinking about is, for example, a fetus. So for him, right, a fetus is not autonomous. A fetus is completely and totally dependent on the host mother for life, for existence. Right? The, the fetus is incapable of doing anything for his or herself. So then it becomes an issue there about, uh, and again, talk about controversy and other people who hate Peter Singer. That's a group of people pro, um, what is it? Pro life. Pro life hate Peter Singer because this configuration excludes the human fetus as a, a person, right? And like we said back a couple of weeks ago, right? Personhood is a huge key variable. And if we had a better articulation of personhood, we would have a really useful interjection to all these arguments about end of life, about whether animals should be treated as equals and whether fetuses are people. We would have a that would be massive. It will never happen because people will fight about it of course and there'll be no conclusion. But for each of us as we make our own decisions about these things, that's that's really really important. So here we have Seven aspects of personhood that Singer says are essential. So then we have to reconsider all of, all of beinghood, if you will, or all beings, right? And say, pass or fail, right? Because they have to have all of these elements. This is not a 60% doesn't cut it. It has to be a, a full inclusion. If you have all of these, you're in. If you don't have all of these, you're out. Now this is interesting because this doesn't necessarily preclude us from eating certain kinds of animals. Um, So for example, it's been argued, Jeff McMahon, so M-A-C-M-A-H-A-N, he made an argument once uh, that was very fascinating because he's a vegetarian, I believe vegetarian, not vegan, philosopher, admirer of singers, but he says when we use this criteria, you start seeing that there's lots of animal protein available that still we can eat, which is which is interesting because it kind of works against the overall thrust of this. But he pointed to um, certain kinds of shellfish because um, shrimp, for example, don't necessarily have the central nervous um, brain development to feel pain. So cooking and eating a shrimp is a different experience from catching a fish, which, if you've ever gone fishing or seen it, right, a fish out of water violently attempts to free itself and get back to the water. So we could say, um, you know, we could look at we could look at fish under all seven of these categories, but certainly you would see at least an effort to save itself. Now, maybe that's purely biological and not a reasoned behavior. I don't know whether we can talk about that. But he says shrimp, for example, fall beneath the definition entirely, right? They don't have any of these seven things. Therefore, eat as much shrimp as you, as you can afford to, right? So if you're looking for a way to boost your protein ethically, there you go, right? And it's keto-friendly for those of you who care about that. But it's the capacities of animals. Now, this can also get a bit difficult, right? How do you determine uh, what a shrimp knows? Do you, do you survey shrimp to find out how they feel about stuff? right it's not possible so you have to make your best guess based on the scientific knowledge available but what has happened lately is that the research is showing uh that animals actually have greater capacities than we imagined when you think about you know Descartes and people in the 1700s who basically saw horses and cows and so forth as being um, incapable of human emotions or human feelings or human thought. And they're also, by the way, you know, they categorize women that way because that's why women weren't people either, right? They were creatures that could be lovely and adored and whatever else, but, you know, not the equal of, they're not real people. Animals, we're still having this discussion, we're having this discussion now where We're seeing more and more research that suggests that they have deeper intellectual and emotional lives than we ever imagined before. There was actually this huge symposium in London, England in 2005 that I happened to read the proceedings. So people would present papers there. um, Then they compile all the papers into a book, which I read. uh, And it was really fascinating. So here's the kinds of of findings that they... um, that they have made. And this was in 2005, so this is a while ago already. There's a great story that I saw in the news just like the other day, which I'm gonna post up for interest only. That's not exam material what I'm gonna post up there extra, but it's really quite fascinating. But let me talk about this symposium, 2005. So people did these studies. They found that sheep developed deep friendships. Okay, so sheep who were raised together are separated for many years Brought back together and instantly show signs of affinity for each other over the others, right? So you've friends parted for a long time, see each other at the train station, and there's big hugs. The person's not hugging everybody in the train station. They're hugging this person that they've rekindled this acquaintance with or this friendship with. And that sheep were shown doing the exact same kind of behavior. That's interesting. So having memory, having preference for some of your kind over others, that's that's interesting, right? That's, that's the kind of discrimination that we're actually interested in, in terms of showing that you have capacity of reason, capacity of preference, not just pure biological drive, but you like this over that, you like this type of person over that, you like this kind of sheep over that kind of sheep. Cows are problem solvers. This is kind of a classic one from psychology. Um, You know, giving animals mazes, or cows mazes, to uh, manipulate, and they can actually solve mazes, like puzzles. Um, Animals seem to, according to this study, and then subsequent studies afterwards, seem to have functions of reason and functions of emotion that are in a kind of a similar relationship to our own, right? The idea was initially, in enlightenment thinking was, well, reason was what mattered, and emotion got in the way. And emotion was uh, something to temper and to quiet down so that your reason can function, right? You get upset, you don't think clearly, you do stupid stuff you should never have done, right? Now what we understand is that emotion actually plays a really important part in our reason. Like they're not opposites, one to be favored over the other, but they need to be together in order for both to be healthy, So animals are starting, we're starting to show that animals have this kind of relationship also, right? They're not just wildly aggressive or wildly passive and have no thinking. And then when you have, when they wire up cow's brains to examine how they function, you can see, right, cows can anticipate rewards. They can anticipate um, situations. Their brain changes, their brain activity changes in moments of anticipation, like they can foresee a future. So that's a heck of a thing. And then you can go through, you can study this, if you Google Scholar this, you will be stuck at the computer for days and days. Don't do that, unless this is really the thing that floats your boat, but what you'll find is that there's an abundance of research that's saying animals have much more complex lives intellectually than we ever gave them credit for they've had it all this time we were just too dumb to notice we didn't have the tools to observe and we had the prejudice that they were just dumb animals <laughs> right and now you're starting to see like ah they kind of function at a pretty high level and more animals than we thought i mean think people always sort of thought well, primates. And dolphins and other kinds of the highest order, the elite of the non-human mammal world, were under consideration for sure. But now we're starting to see going down the species to where we sort of thought they didn't function at a high enough level. Well, now we're starting to see that they actually do function at a pretty high level. And so that's a a major situation. There was a, a news article that came out last year that was saying that rats avoid harming other rats. Right? So they do, they do take major steps to not cause harm to each other. Right? And it's interesting because this was actually out of a psychology study. Uh, and they were studying sociopathology in humans. Right? So sociopaths. They were, and they were saying, like, this dynamic that they observed in rats actually has use for us as humans in dealing with sociopaths, and if you know any sociopaths, uh, (laughs) you know, uh, you probably want them to get help, because uh, that isn't fun. The key thing in in Singer's work, though, is, like I said, if a human doesn't fulfill the category, so we've expanded the category to include animals, and we're starting to see more evidence that would suggest that if we used Singer's model, we would be accepting more creatures who aren't humans into that personhood category. Singer's original thing in 72 and he sticks with it now even though it's it's a uh, significantly controversial and paints him in a very uh negative light. Uh and he he gets both fair and unfair criticism for it. But he's saying that if you're a human and you develop a problem or some kind of mental damage or some kind of disease that Puts you beneath the level of personhood, then we shouldn't care for you like a person, right? To use hospital resources that are for people and give them to a non-person is wasteful, right? It's like taking you know interferon and pouring it down the drain or feeding it to your goldfish. Um, why, right? It's a waste. So for Singer, he thinks that is equivalent. That, of course, has caused him <laughs> all kinds of grief and. There's lots to be said about that. But he's saying, look, if the category of if medicine and care and health is for people and you're not a person, you shouldn't enjoy those privileges. That's that's the key, right? He's saying just because you're a human doesn't make you a person. A person is a person by virtue of them passing these seven criteria. And that what we've done in the past is then we've been favoring humans over other creatures, um, and like almost like an atrocity that we've been committing. So Singer, if we take this, this personhood idea that he's proposed here, and we said, what does this do for other topics? Because here he's put forward personhood as an idea, as a concept, that we can actually argue about the elements of it. It's not an obscure concept. We all know what personhood is. Well, no, we don't. Tell me what it is. Well, Singer is actually brought it to us and said, here's what it is. Now we can debate the validity of his model, but we can, he can tell us what his model is. So one, what does this conception do for, for example, abortion, right? It's acceptable in this model because fetuses aren't people. He went even further because this is the way this guy works. He felt that humans don't really reach personhood until at least three months after birth. What's Implied there is that anything you did to a newborn who was less than three years, three months old, less than three months old, was morally okay because that's not a person. Right? Now you can, that would be, of course, uh, <laughs> unpopular is the safest way to describe that one. Because uh, even, pe- because abortion is controversial, but infanticide's not really controversial. I think everybody basically hates that. Right? And he's saying, ah, you know, Early on, it's not really, not really a problem. And that, of course, has made him incredibly hated. Euthanasia-assisted suicide. Not only is it acceptable, it would actually be encouraged. And this is actually one of the things that people worry about in me- a medical assistant in dying literature and research and legal uh, thought. They don't want it to be encouraged. They want it to be entirely driven by the patient who's asking for it. Right. And that's the concern is that as we change the law and make it easier to get and more accessible to patients, the concern is that you'll get to a point where it could be encouraged as an option. Now, so for him, it's encouraged because if you're going to slip below the level personhood status, you shouldn't be taking up medical resources. So, choosing that option would be the morally responsible choice on the part of the person making it, saying, "I don't want if I become uh, in a persistent vegetative state, I want you to shut everything off and let me die. That would be, for Singer, not just an okay choice, but the most sensible moral choice, almost an obligation, if you will. Remember our continuum, right? Absolutely not allowed, moving over to morally discouraged, to the middle, which is kind of neutral. Then over here you have behaviors um, that are good, you should consider doing or you should try to do. And then on the far left side, if we were starting on our right with absolutely not and moving over like an imaginary continuum to our far left, and on the far left is like, absolutely, you must do this. For him, choosing assisted suicide as a person approaching uh, in the event that you became disabled, that's an obligation for you. And that's that's part of his construction of personhood. What about xenotransplantation, right? No, absolutely not. Because those are tissues grown in other mammals who um, can't consent. See, it's an interesting thing, though, of course. You know, we could say, uh, if we can't communicate with them in order to obtain consent, then it shouldn't be allowed. You grow, uh, my neighbor gave his kidney to his son because his son was born was a twin and had an underdeveloped renal system. And as such, he was uh, in danger of dying. And his father turned out to be the only donor who was acceptable. And so he gave his kidney to his son. Everybody thinks that's fantastic, right? Um, And the father, of course, made the choice, such as it was, to save his son's life. Um, And that was a, a big moment in our neighborhood. Now, an animal could do the same thing. And now the problem would be, of course, for Singer is that although you can be a person and you can communicate, it didn't mean that necessarily you can communicate with the the people making that decision for you or making that, you know, the treatment team, the transplant team. So he kind of walks a line there about, well, if an animal can't consent or a higher order person, a person from a higher order mammal group, can't consent in our language, then we can't use them for th- We can't just use them. Just like we can't just use a person. Uh, my neighbor had to agree to having his kidney taken. They didn't hold him down and cut it out. And he woke up in a bathtub full of ice in New Orleans or whatever that urban myth is. Number four, animal research. Disallowed. If monkeys are people, then you can't subject them to torturous exposures to illness or torturous exposures to our experimental drugs any more than you would for a human. So <laughs> what is wrong with this, this theory, this perspective? Well, there's lots of problems, of course, and you've heard, I think I've made it clear what a lot of them are. Richard Posner is a law professor at the University of Chicago, and he and Peter Singer engaged in a, a really brilliant, what they called, exchange of letters, and it was on salon.com. I don't know if that still exists, but it used to be a, a social media slash news outlet And they exchanged this this series of letters, very respectful. I think they actually like each other as people, but they modeled ideal debates where they actually talked about the person's ideas and what they found lacking in them back and forth. And Posner points out, he thinks, of course, he offers what we call a synthesis. So that's basically a moderate or compromise between two points of view, usually known as the thesis and the antithesis. So one thesis is like a a statement of, this is what should happen. The antithesis is saying that should never happen. And then somewhere in the middle, there's this resolution say like both, you know, here's the best of both of these, and this should be the conclusion from there on. So Posner's synthesis in his debate between um, Singer and sort of like another position, which would be um, absolutely denying animal rights, for example, so Posner said, well, look, we should alleviate the pains of animals without substantially reducing our standard of living and that of the rest of the world without sacri- and without sacrificing medical or scientific progress. All right. So his point of view is, for example, he thinks that obviously the status of animals and the way they're treated now is unacceptable. But equality with humans is not okay either because one of the side effects of that is going to be Um, an absolute elimination or impairment if you will in our ability to address human problems so therefore possibly um, endangering all of society i mean you imagine now in the example of the coronavirus if the coronavirus vaccines were delayed by virtue of the fact that we couldn't experiment on animals in stage two of of a three-stage research progress usually it's um you know, bench science leading to animal trials, leading to human trials, leading to certification uh, for use in the population. Now, if we take out that second stage, how do we replace it? How do we reliably create something safe enough to go to basically a stage three for everyone? You'd go from stage one straight to a stage three situation. I think that would probably expose animals and humans and people alike to significant threats. The last thought I had was about something that's sort of coming up now very quickly is um, meat, because we've talked about it as like you eat meat, you don't eat meat, one of those two, but now they're starting to have lab synthesized meat. So here's an interesting one. You can have hamburger, but it, the hamburger was not extracted through cruelty to an animal. So that's interesting. But it did, in the initial, become it come from cruelty to an animal, right? Because the DNA was extracted from a dead cow uh, in order to create this genetic line uh, that's commercialized. So Peter Singer actually wrote a thing about that he thought this was an excellent thing, and he should as a utilitarian. Why? Because if we could produce meat, without actually even needing to raise animals, that should allow us to do some kind of work about the malnutrition problem globally, right? Because we would have this ability to produce meat without actually having to have the land or the conditions to raise animals. And therefore, we could do something about hunger in other parts of the world. Now, the thing, <laughs> and Singer wasn't, was this was his optimism, right? Because he would create greater good for the greater number using this without the downside of causing harm to another species right so for him this is a resolution the issue of course is and i mentioned this earlier hunger is not basically an issue of supply it's an issue issue of distribution so i my fear of this is is that we will have lab-grown meat which will not result in people who don't have enough food getting meat anymore, necessarily. Especially since, right now, lab-grown meat is incredibly more expensive than the old-fashioned variety. So we're clearly not shipping that off to destitute parts of the world to feed people. All right, folks, that's enough for today. Uh, I guess that's enough for this semester and this year. This was fun. Uh, I I really would have preferred to see all y'all but it's kind of fun to see places in the world that you're listening from. We, had, we have uh, classmates in South Africa, we have classmates in Hungary, we have classmates in China, in Hong Kong, um, all over the world, there's people tuning in. So it's, kinda, it's really kind of cool. Um, I hope you all keep a spot on your couch for me because as soon as we can travel, I'm gonna be heading your way. All right, watch for information about the exam coming out. It comes out uh, tonight. Um, also, watch for uh, more information about I'm g- giving you exam material tonight. I'm also going to be giving you more as I finish it. Right now, you have sort of an outline of what's going to happen with the exam. Because I haven't finished writing it. <laughs> but when I finish, I'll be able to give you a very specific breakdown of what's on it so that you can spend your time wisely. There was nothing I hated more in, in university when we had you know four textbooks Uh, all of them huge, and you spend all your time reading this, or you spend a lot of your time reading this one fat textbook only to have the prof use one question of the whole thing and you burnt like 20 hours reading the damn thing over and over. So I'll be giving you some advice about how to triage your time, right? And if you know what triage is, and you should, you really should, then you'll know what that meant. Otherwise, you should find out because it was in the lectures. All right, people, okay? Take care of yourself. It's a tough time right now. I know a lot of you are suffering. Um, uh, I appreciate that, I understand that. Um, And you know, we're trying, just try to be good to each other. I'm trying to be good to you folks as well. And uh, if you have any questions or any concerns, drop me a line, Uh, I'll be available. And we're gonna do some Zoom classes, Zoom uh, exam question and answer periods and all that kind of thing. All right, people, take care of yourselves, okay? Hope you get some good downtime coming up soon. Take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Have a great weekend.